Welcome to episode I don't know what of <laughs> of the long dormant false neutral podcast. I am Pete Tonchinomizilliox, and with me are Eric and Garrett, my co-hosts. Welcome after I don't know how many months it's been since all three of us been on. Uh, many. I think it's been since, uh, at least according to Skype, since September that Eric and I talked. And all three of us would have been uh, uh, several months prior to that. July 5th, I think, was the yeah. last time all three of us were on. Yeah, uh, it would have been the SmackDab ride, or not SmackDab. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, is, which is why Ethan Sayer has been invited think... to be part of this call. Uh, so if he shows up. I wasn't on that call, though. You weren't? So, no. So the us three together would have been um, probably the one prior to that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we've got uh, a lot of catching up to do. Uh, yes. As you guys know, I kind of stepped away from the podcast sometime last summer. Uh, my mother-in-law, who we are caregivers, were caregivers for, was in very bad health, requiring a lot of care, and she passed away in uh, at the end of October, and we had a lot of. Uh, the kind of things you have to do, taking care of her affairs and her belongings and all that kind of stuff. So I have a house full of my mother-in-law's stuff that we're trying to sort through. But uh, fortunately, that has freed up enough time that I can I can come back and do this with you guys because I really did miss it. Uh, we have decided that we're going to go to a monthly format instead of weekly so that we can do this a little bit longer. It, it, trying to do something that takes a lot every week is not something you can do indefinitely. We're now going to do a once a month podcast, which is better than saying you're going to do it once a week and not doing it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. This is sustainable. So yeah, and, and and given that's the winner, there's not a lot to talk about anyway. So <laughs> that's true. Well, and like um, one of our listeners who I finally responded to on our Facebook uh, account after months of not looking at it um he asked me if i wanted to go for a ride and i was looking at some of his pictures and he obviously rides all year long uh you know he's got the touring suit and the adventure bike and so i messaged him back and i'm like i'll be real honest with you i'm a fair weather rider if i if if, if it's below 72 degrees outside i'm cold when i ride and i just <laughs> <laughs> so i ride between like mid-may and september and that's about it. So, and I think it's probably even worse where you guys are at. I think that you're like what negative one thousand degrees out east and in, in the Midwest. The high today here in Metro Detroit was fourteen. Nice. Uh, they there was an item in the news today saying that we had not been above twenty degrees Fahrenheit for two and a half weeks, and that's oh. like if it goes another three days, it breaks a record. That's brutal. We were in at midnight on New Year's. We set the uh, low for the month of uh, December, and it was negative 12, 11 degrees, and minus 11 uh -huh. was the official temperature. And uh, it hasn't gotten a whole lot warmer since then. Uh, yeah. Ironically, in well, early December, it was 72 degrees here. So we had 72 and wow. <laughs> minus 11 in the same month. 
Well, it rains all the time here, but it rarely gets below 32. So at least we have that going for ourselves in the Northwest. I actually uh, like riding in the cold. Uh, some of our favorite trips have been, you know, when it's not super freezing, but, you know, well, 40s you know, and 50s. The point- the point that I made when I was talking about being a fair weather rider is all of, um, to our listener through our chat, um, all of the tires on my motorcycles are like the summer sports tires. And when it's 45 or 50 degrees outside, the tires don't respond well at all. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty frightening. I mean, I'm really conscious of the back tires slipping and going around a corner and, and just like, a little bit of throttle and the tire will just spin because they turn into marbles when it's that cold outside. When I was in the army and stationed at uh, Fort Lewis outside Tacoma, I thought I was going to be a real hot shoe. And I got the original uh, Dunlop K291R street legal race tires uh, for a 600 single. And, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, when they were hot, they worked great, but they would literally varnish overnight. If you got them real hot and parked it the next time you came out, you could yeah. actually take your finger and scratch the varnish that had come out of the rubber the next day. Yeah. And I crashed low-sided so many times in the first mile away from the barracks. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh. I think the coldest I ever rode in was... Mid to high 30s. And I'm going to say this is an 06 time frame probably i was i remember i was grossly underemployed because the vehicle i had which was a pathfinder like a 92 pathfinder uh the you'd think i'd know this but i would i want to say one of the control arm bushings or whatever is something you go more than about 45 miles an hour and the when the right front tire would want to flap around a lot right you know you couldn't really go past mm-hmm. that so i had a doctor's appointment i had to go to and so I fired up the TZR250, bundled up, and rode on the highway, you know, in the low 30s in February, I think it was, and, and went to the doctor's office. And, uh, you know, I'm riding down the highway, and, I, I, you know, everyone's doing triple takes over their shoulders, and I get to the doctor's office, and everyone looks at me like I'm an oddball, which, okay, maybe I am. <laughs> like, yeah. Like you, you rode a motorcycle here. I'm like, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> yeah, you bundle. I, I was I had about four layers on, but you know, it wasn't the worst I've ever, you know, not the worst I've ever been. So, but I, I, I cold, I cold, I can sort of deal with to a point. But as long as my hands and my feet are okay, I'm usually okay. But if they start to get cold, I'm done because I've had frostbite and it's painful at that point. Um. Oh, I'm sorry. Just to follow up on what Pete said about uh, Pete handed off the show to me and I was had a lot of plans and I'd started to do some stuff and line some stuff up. And uh, unfortunately, work got really busy, which was a good thing. Um, we had the best fourth quarter of our companies ever had in, in in like five years. And unfortunately, that meant about Friday night at about 10 o'clock is when I could think about doing the show. And that got to be about Sunday at 9 p.m. and I'm like, I still haven't done anything. Okay, well I'll get to it next week. And unfortunately, that was about three months. <laughs> so, nice. um, I mean, it's good, and it's it's good going forward for the income wise. Uh, but um, but yeah, show suffered. So yeah, well that's all right. We're back, and I think that we've probably got a lot of catching up to do with 
some of the things that we've been working on lately. Well, I, before we get on to that, I, I do want to mention that uh, we had posted on our Facebook page uh, a an announcement that we were going to relaunch the podcast as a monthly uh, schedule. And I decided, what the heck, I'm going to go ahead and promote this. I, I don't know, I spent 12 or $15 to promote it. And what's interesting is all of the new likes we got, other than people that one of us was personal friends with are all in uh, Romania, Albania, uh, Czech Republic. And I was like, what the heck's going on? And I started looking at their profiles and they were like middle-aged, you know, housewives or people that had nothing about motorcycles in their profile at all. And I thought this was really weird. So I started digging a little bit. We will never pay to promote Facebook stuff again, because all of these people were not real people, uh, click farm accounts. Evidently, you can pay for Facebook likes outside of Facebook. But in order for those people to not get flagged, they have to like legitimate stuff on a fairly regular basis so that they're not detected by Facebook. So it went out to, I don't know, three or four hundred people. And out of the 25 likes that I just happened to look through, other than the ones that were friends of ours, they were about 80% click farm likes. And I found out that's really a bad thing because those people don't ever engage since it's not a real account. They never engage. They never click on your links or react or comment, which really drives down your availability to people who will actually like and comment. It won't show up in their feed. So we screwed up by spending money to try and promote our new reintroduced podcast and it back. Yeah, I think it's insane that that happened through Facebook, too. Like you paid Facebook and basically just got a bunch of junk well, in return. It went out to three or four hundred people and most of those were legitimate. The ones who liked us were the ones that have to like like 3000 things in a year to hide the fact that they're a click farm. So, yeah, I have it. I, I have a uh, uh, Facebook ad account just for work, and there's a very specific way you have to do those pr- paid promotions to avoid that, and yeah, it's 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 a pain in the ass. <laughs> it is basically my uh, my audience was U.S. and Europe people who said they liked motorcycles and liked podcasts. Anyhow, yeah, you have. You have to go down a few a few layers on that. So, anyways, but yeah, like you say, it's uh, it, it's a strategic thing. Um, but that's how Facebook makes money. So, yeah. you got to pay to pay to pay to play with Facebook anymore. That's a long long thing in social media and part of what I get paid for. So, anyways, let's talk oh, about Pete. motorcycles. Yeah, let's hear about Boltakenstein. Where you're at, where you're gonna be by uh, year's end. I'm giving myself the next 300 days to either get it. So that the, I was going to, I originally, I said running, but carb tuning and actually getting a kickstarting, kickstarted engine that you've built running is more problem. You can spend hours and hours tuning something just to get it to, to light after it's built. So my rule is up on two wheels, all of the drivetrain installed, cases together, 
with good internals in the engine, all assembled, cables and everything, that I could kick it over and attempt to start it by the end of October. By the end of October, this project will be seven years old. I haven't done anything to it in... Uh, I think the last thing I did was got the uh, engine mounting plates that you had laser cut for me. And mm-hmm. other than that, the only thing I've done since then is I did go out and uh, buy a chop source bolt together uh, frame jig. And uh, you can see it if you go out to our Facebook page or I'll try to put a, put a picture of it in the, uh, in the Hooniverse post that we'll do for this. And it's actually a really impressive project. They're not cheap. I bought the skinniest, simplest kit, and it still put me back several hundred dollars. And then I had to go out and buy the uh, square channel tube to bolt everything to. But considering that it is pretty much repeatedly reliable and disassemblable, and it's all ready to go. You don't have to weld anything. You don't have to fabricate anything. Uh, it's really the way more and more people are going, and it's a really good product. And yeah, it actually looks really nice. It, it actually is. And if I don't do anything else with it, I could probably sell it for enough money that it won't be a big loss. And if I ever can get this together and decide to do another project, it's... it. it it's invaluable. Even if you're not building a frame, just to be able to measure all your dimensions accurately, verify your frame is straight, verify your wheels are where they're supposed to be in line, it's it's a very handy thing for bike building. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that when well, I'm not using it, I can disassemble it and put it under the workbench. Um, as far as the engine goes on that, uh, does it still need... Crankshaft work, cylinder bores, pistons. Like, are you doing a whole engine? I'm building rebuild? it out of garbage. Of course, I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's got a Persang two 1971 Persang 250 cases. It's got a, a Sherpa S 67 or 68 Sherpa S 200 cylinder. It's got a Lobito 175 transmission. Now, they're all pretty much interchangeable as far as they'll bolt together, but they are certainly not things that were matched from the factory and run in together. Yeah. And, and my, and my crank is, I forget what the crank is out of, but it's, it's toast. I mean, it's rusty bearings. It needs to be pressed apart and rebuilt and all that kind of good stuff. So, yeah, I do have a new new piston for it. First over or second over piston. Uh, I think it's actually second over. But the cylinder needs to be bored for it and stuff like that. So, oh, yeah, there's there's an incredible amount. The good news is the engine stuff is all designed to go together, so I don't have to re-engineer anything. It's just a question of spending the money to go do it. So, Well, when you get closer to needing the cylinder board and the piston fit just send it to me and i can do that for you oh okay i can i can do that tomorrow that's excellent Pete's <laughs> <laughs> like oh i got a box and i can got some yeah. wrap and <laughs> the thing that ticks me off is i bought a perfect cylinder and it, they shipped it ups and they just put bubble wrap around it and oh. the bottom fin bent in shipment <laughs> 
I bought it off eBay, and the pictures on eBay don't show it bent. I'm convinced that the guy put it in the box in in perfect condition. And yeah, it. So now, I was really bummed about it, and a friend of mine said, "Hey, bent fins add character." <laughs> yeah, well, the unfortunate thing about aluminum is it generally only bends once, Every, and it doesn't return. That unless you have an oven and you can get it to the yeah. point where you're almost resmelting it, don't try to bend it. So I was like, oh, yeah, okay. it's coming off. If you got it that hot, then the cylinder is going to be ruined anyways. So right, it's uh, it, it's 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 that shape now. Yep. <laughs> it's not going back. <laughs> well, and considering everything else on this is used crap. <laughs> nobody's going to look at it and yeah, go, I guess, it would right. be a museum perfect motorcycle if not for that bent fin. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, uh, what yeah. have you been up to? Uh, it's, it's the Half, Half Moon Bay Concourse. Is that, is that, thing, is that still a thing? But anyways. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, so I have, well, two sons. My oldest son is just about to turn three. And just before he was born, my dad found this 1994 Honda Z50R. And I, I don't think he even paid any money for it. I mean, I hope he didn't anyways. Uh, but he intended to, you know, kind of fix it up for my son to ride when he turns uh, four years old, approximately. And so it's just kind of been sitting around since then. So about, you know, three and a half years. And so I finally got it out and started working on it. Um, my goal is to have it restored and finished by his fourth birthday. Um, the problem is this motorcycle is not what most people would consider salvageable or saveable <laughs> or restorable. Um, like many... Z50s, they got ridden by adults uh, and jumped and abused aggressively. Uh, so this one, I don't think there's a single part on it that isn't just completely destroyed. It it runs and shifts, and so the engine's okay. Not that it really matters, because I just got done. I tore the whole motor apart Um Rebuilt the transmission, got a new crankshaft, a new cylinder, a new head, uh, glass beaded the cases. Um, I'm powder coating the clutch cover. So basically what I'm going to do to this Z50 is um, om like almost a concourse restoration, except not... If, if, like, you had a brand new Z50 sitting next to it, uh, you'd be able to tell there's some differences. I don't think that I'll try to do the same Shasta white Honda color, but I'll do something close. And then, you know, there's some, like, gold cadmium plated parts on it, and I'm not going to go through the effort to try to replate in, uh, the gold cadmium. Um, but I want to return it to, you know, basically looking like it's new on the showroom floor. Uh, and so... I've got about a year to do that. Uh, the engine's basically done. Uh, I've got everything stripped down, uh, ready to go get sandblasted so I can powder coat it all. Uh, I got, uh, for the engine, I got all new OEM hardware. Because you can still get all of it from Honda. At least almost every part on the bike you can still get from Honda. So I bought all new OEM nuts and bolts for everything. I got the uh, OEM tractor grip tires for it um so it'll be it'll be nice but it's going to cost about three times more than 
what I could buy a nice one for. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's some sentiment to the motorcycle for one. um, And two, you know, I'm, I'm, at least I'm trying to justify it as being a hobby and hobbies cost money. So, um, you know, there's that, but it honestly, it's the bike wouldn't be worth saving but i already have it and i have the skills and abilities and resources to to restore it so that's what i'm gonna do so by my son's fourth birthday it'll look brand new and he'll he'll get to ride it i posted on our facebook page um i was rebuilding the three-speed auto clutch in it and uh, everything looked pretty good, but since an adult was riding it, I just wanted to replace the clutch frictions in it. And so I took the thing apart, and there's three frictions in it, and they have to go together in a certain way. And I put it back together, and I did it and realized like I wasn't completely paying attention when I put it together. So I figured I should just disassemble the clutch, just make sure I put it together properly. And when I was disassembling it, I noticed that uh, one of the inner clutch hubs was fractured um, all the way through. It's got this um, mechanism oh, yeah. where there's like ramps, and and so two parts uh, can like ramp away from each other and put pressure on the clutch. And I think just from a you know a heavy adult riding it and jumping it and constantly having you know the tire starting and stopping, uh, it, it must have just fractured that inner clutch hub. So luckily, I, I took the clutch apart to to double check my work and i found that so yeah that was a fun picture you posted yeah it it definitely it it, it's you know one of those things when when a cast piece is is cracked it's so hard to see it unless you're like really looking closely and so it took me two tries to find it but luckily i did so i don't think it would have been catastrophic had i left it in there it can't really come apart but um it would the clutch definitely would have acted funny at the very least. You have no idea how much that scares me about building a bike out of garbage. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> because everything in my you bike know, is, is, you know, something someone cast off, it took apart and put on, on eBay or Craigslist. So, uh, you know, the way that I see it is like, you know, the old Cosworth um, indie motors or Formula One motors where they used to take like, uh, these engine blocks, the ones that were high mileage, they would leave them outside for a couple years and then build the Formula One motors out of these engine blocks because, like, the ones that had 50,000 miles on them, they knew they were good, they knew they were strong, they weren't going to fail, and so they'd build their Formula One motors around these, like, old uh, iron engine blocks. And it's it's kind of like that, I feel like, for old motorcycle parts. If they visually inspect okay, like, you know, they've they've had some miles on them. They're probably going to be good. Um, it's just, you know, when you put a part in that's already broken and you didn't realize it, that's you want to avoid that. But if, as long as everything is is not yet broken, it's probably going to be fine. That's the way that I see it. You're, you're adopting the uh, Bradley Brunel philosophy of, <laughs> yeah, don't worry about exactly. it, it'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, well, it reminded me when I was putting that together, um, you know, and, and I posted uh, a question on the Facebook page. Has anybody had a near miss like that? And it reminds me of uh, many years ago, my dad was building an engine. Um, he was assembling the head and used a paper towel to hold the time, the, the cam chain up. 
and was putting everything back together and, and, and like just spaced it and didn't realize that paper towel was still in the cam chain area, put the whole motor together. And obviously it almost instantly failed. And, you know, it was like, I have no idea what's going on, why the engine failed, pull the top end apart. And there's this like, like fibers and like dust material <laughs> everywhere. And then it's like, Oh yeah, no, I remember <laughs> that was an expensive mistake. <laughs> I, I assume that you haven't bought a touring BMW. I have not yet. Are you still? That, is that uh, something that's still in the in the works? Or, well, it's yes, yes and no. I'm not like actively searching for one right at this moment, but um, there for a bit, my friend and I were like, I mean, we were looking every day on Craigslist for the right bike to come around to to go look at and. And, and, you know, luckily I didn't find anything right away because it kind of like I burnt myself out on looking for them and just kind of figured I'd wait for a little bit. But um, it is definitely a plan of mine to buy a 2003, 4, 5-ish BMW K1200 LT. And, you know, I'm talking about the biggest, heaviest BMW motorcycle you could get in the 2000s. Um and I want to ride it uh, basically out to the Midwest and back uh, from Washington State. And I want to do that with a couple of friends because, you know, the FC1, they say, is a sport touring bike. And it probably is, except my bony little butt can't stand more than an hour of seat time on it. So I wanted to get something more comfortable with cruise control and, you know, all the bells and whistles. So... And, and those BMW motorcycles, from what I can tell, um, they seem to like generally be very reliable, except for having kind of weird gremlins here and there. Except for the final drive bearing in the uh, in the rear wheel for the the shaft drive unit, uh, it's a one sided swing arm, like a lot of BMWs are, and and that um, big main bearing in the rear wheel, I guess, has a lot of problems, but. Um, you know, if I could get three to five thousand miles out of the bike, I feel like I will have come away even. You know, because you can get them for almost free. They have incredibly poor resale values. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I feel like it's it's worth the gamble. I'll pay probably three thousand bucks for a bike, um, ride it across the country, and you know, if it's gone like we were talking about earlier, if it's gone 40,000 miles, I'm sure it'll make it to 50. And if it does, I'll be perfectly fine with that. I feel like I'll have gotten my money's worth. So it might be a stupid idea. There's probably some listeners right now that are uh, like, they know that I'm retarded for doing this, but um, I don't know. It just seems like it'd be fun to do. So I, I also have to ask, do you still have a TX 750? I do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think the last time we talked about that bike, I had sold it and, um, I knew you'd bought it back. Well, so I had my, uh, my Honda Nighthawk and the TX 750 for sale at the same time. And the kid that came to look at the TX 750 was also like kind of interested in the nine. He was just looking for a first bike. He really liked the TX 750 style, the, you know, classic, uh, 70 style. 
you know, but the unfortunate thing about that motorcycle is, is you know, it's not a Honda Nighthawk. It's it's kind of finicky. It's cold blooded. Um, it's not an easy bike to ride. The brakes don't work very well. Um, it's very heavy. And after having it for just a couple of days, he had dropped it once and it just decided it wasn't the bike for him. And, and so I offered him to take the the Honda Nighthawk instead, which he did. I think that was a much better bike uh, for him to learn on. But um, so I have the TXM 50 and I haven't even looked at it since that day. I put it uh, back in the back corner of my shop and that's where it's at. Is it an enjoyable ride? I mean, I like it. Yeah. I mean, ever since, since I fixed the electric start, um, kickstarting it was just a bear. That was not a lot of fun at all. Especially like, so I've mutilated my right foot, broke every bone in it. And so it's really difficult for me to kickstart bikes. And so, um, that's the reason why I fixed the electric start on it. And, um, it is, it's really fun. It's got a lot of torque. Um, obviously it, it's not a fast bike by any means, but you know, it's a 750 twin. So it does have a lot of torque and it looks really good. Um, it's definitely not a new bike. So, um, it's just one of those things where you just kind of keep around a ride once a year or once every two years or maybe not ever <laughs> again. I don't really know, but, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll probably, uh, get around to, I'll probably do a full restoration on that bike too, but it's kind of the last on the list. Um, first on the list is that Honda that I was just talking about. And second on the list now is I, the other day bought a 2001 Kawasaki KX250 dirt bike. And like the Z50, it is, uh, what most people would consider unsalvageable. (laughs) (laughs) It, it, It is, extremely wore out um but uh i i got it for basically nothing and it runs and rides and and like you know everything more or less works on it it just needs everything needs to be reconditioned so uh, that's what i plan to do i'm going to disassemble it entirely uh and i'm going to uh, powder coat everything rebuild the engine i'll probably do a big bore 300 cc top end on it uh, and build a new wheel set and basically look, make it, I want it to look like a, a factory works 2001 KX250. The main reason I wanted it is because the 2001 KX250 is the first, uh, supercross championship for Ricky Carmichael on the, on the big bike. So he won his first, uh, big bike supercross on that. So I don't know. I think it's kind of cool for that reason. So I'll restore it and, I, I yeah. can remember the ads in the newspaper or the the magazines for that bike, and it had uh, oh, who was it? Brad Lackey was in the ad, yeah. and uh, I always thought he was not being into dirt bikes much. He was always one of the dirt riders that I kind of uh, uh, considered one of my heroes. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, growing up. Um I mean, I really, really liked Ricky Carmichael growing up. And in the early 2000s, my dad was a factory Suzuki mechanic for one of the factory motocross teams. And so, like, I remember being in the pits and everything. And and back then, the pits were, like, 
I mean, really anybody could go in them and you could meet all the writers. But, you know, I would go up to to Carmichael or McGrath and get to talk to him. And I just remember like being so enthused about Ricky Carmichael. And so um, I started getting into and I hadn't uh, known about it, but there's a one of the motocross uh, websites. They do a monthly thing called GP's Classic Steel where um, it's just like a write-up about some motorcycle from some point in time, uh, all motocross stuff. But um, a few weeks ago, I was reading their little write-up on the 2001 KX250, and I was like, man, that's pretty cool. And I just happened to come across one for you know a good price, and so that's why I ended up buying it. But uh, yeah, and so I've really fallen in love with the 90s and, and early 2000s motocross advertisements uh you know so like i've been looking at a lot of old magazine advertisements and especially for the the 90s models i think we talked about at some point in the past like some wild designs but um suzuki had like a leopard print and like zebra print like super bright looking i think it was a 97 rm250 and so i've kind of got into like thinking about restoring some of those old motocross bikes. So I'm going to start with this KX and uh, we'll see how that goes. I remember early two thousands Honda did some crossover on their super bikes and motocross bikes. And I want to say it was like Jurassic park stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I'm wrong on that. But it seems like there was, some, there was a movie. There were a couple movie, different tie-ins, I think. Back yeah. Then. Yeah. Some of the some of the I remember some of the RMs had some really wild kind of like uh teal and purple zebra stripes oh, yeah. and stuff like that. Oh yeah. And yep. uh, the, Yeah, I think the, for a couple you of and years I were talking about probably the same bike. For the for the couple for a couple of years the uh KLR got some pretty wild uh just kind of accent stripes and stuff on them. Yeah. Uh, well you know, so that's um, when all these colors were were really popular. That's right when I was like really getting into uh, motocross riding, and so like that's really what I gravitate towards. And so I kind of want to get into some of the restoration of those '90s bikes. And so um, I I at one time had my own powder coating oven, and I ended up uh, selling the oven because I figured I'd never do it again because I like really hated powder coating. Um, but now I'm building another oven just because I want to get into some more of the restoration stuff. So, um, and, and so I'm documenting all of this stuff and I plan to put it on our Facebook post, including the powder coating oven. Cause, um, I, I get so many questions about how to build powder coating ovens cause it's really simple. Uh, you know, and you can just use a small like house oven. Um, but the one that I'm building, you can fit, you know, like a, motorcycle frame in so um i'll kind of document how i'm doing that so if any of our listeners are into restorations um they might be interested in building a powder coating oven themselves and also if any of our listeners happen to know of and, and i mean anywhere in the country uh, a good place to get zinc plating done i would love to know i've been i've been it seems like universally uh, metal plating businesses just suck like you never get your parts back you know they say two weeks it ends up being four months and you're missing parts and so i'm hoping to find a good place that somebody knows about that's done business for them and you know hopefully get a good referral so uh, there is a place 
<clears throat> I'm going to say it's called. This has got to be the place. Uh, Advanced plating out of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh-huh. If it's the place I'm thinking of, um, they if uh, that's got to be the place. Yeah. Uh, so they do chrome work and plating work for like all the top end hot rod builders. Oh yeah. And a friend of mine had his um, 65 Lincoln Continental stuff done there, and it looks better than factory fresh. Yeah, I um. Yeah, on the internet, advancedplating.com. Yep, that's the place. I found of some I found of a place in North Carolina that people seemed to have good luck with and you know, but it's just so hard to know. I like I've done business with a good portion of the plating shops in my area and they all just universally suck. And so and and I mean, it, it's easy to see why. I, it's hard work. They don't get paid enough to do it. And I, I don't think, like, the employees really love doing what they do. And I think that it probably just reflects in the customer service and, you know, the customer experience and all that. But, yep. you know, I mean, I don't mind paying to you know, to get it done right. And I'll probably send two or three motorcycles worth of nuts and bolts to get done at a time. But, um I just want to find a place that I can rely on for, you know, years to come. So, mm-hmm. And it's not going to be anywhere locally because, like I said, they all just suck. Well, and also... But yeah, it, I'll look at that. Uh, plating is such an environmentally... Yes. Know, as far <laughs> as environmental law and OSHA and right. stuff, it's so hazardous that there's a lot of people in it that... What do I want to say? Smart people don't do it. <laughs> yeah no i mean i think you're right it's, you know and like like the gold cadmium plating um like it is extremely toxic i think that you know it's full of carcinogens and all sorts of nasty stuff and like nobody wants to be around that and i don't think i don't even think you can do it in a lot of states like california i don't think they'd ever allow it anywhere in their state but um and so it's just really hard to find a place that does it and does it well so uh, i know that was there was a metal plating place uh in the north end of kansas city for many years and they ended up closing not because they weren't profitable but because uh the epa was going to require them to basically build a moat with detection equipment all the way around their property and you know do soil sampling that was going to have you know uh automated uh sensors in it and stuff like that and they were like they were like this old garage that had been around right. you know, industrial building that had been around since the forties. And they yeah. said, we, we can't afford to do that. So they, yeah. they closed completely. And I think they only did, uh, towards the end. I know they didn't do chromium planing. I think they did like nickel and nickel copper were the only things they plated yeah. for the last four or five years that they were open. Cause that's the least hazardous thing. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it is tough. Uh, one of my good friends works for a chemical manufacturer, and you know, and they're a big, gigantic company, so they can afford it. But they have that whole moat uh, surrounding their whole pl- uh, chemical plant. But you know, for most of these chrome shops, they're just small little, you know, mom and pop, hot rod and little chrome shops, and, and they can't afford the five million dollar moat yeah. around their place. So, nope. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. In the future, I feel like it might get kind of tough um, to get plating done. You know, it just seems like so many of these places are drying up or going away or reg- regulations becoming too strict. Um, you'll you'll be shipping internationally to China yeah, and to Mexico, exactly. essentially. Right. And I think two things are going to happen is I think there's going to be less stuff that's plated because, yeah. you know, you can vapor blast aluminum and make it look really nice. Yeah. And not necessarily feel like you've got a chrome plate stuff to get a really nice finish on it. Yeah. And uh, I also think there are going to be more and more synthetic uh, composite type of finishes that are going to stand up. You know, I know some of the some of the spray on coatings that are non-metallic are getting better and better. And they go, yeah, you know, like they wash Cerakote. up with water. Yeah. 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 I mean, Cerakote is probably still pretty toxic stuff, but not anything like plating materials. But, um, you know, it's used a lot in the firearms industry and, and it's a good product. But, you know, I want to restore these bikes and I want to put, you know, those bright zinc plated parts back on it. And so I don't know. Yeah. Well, like, in the future, like, I'm sure that'll get replaced. But. It's like the, uh, I think it's Cosmochrome, the, the spray yeah. chrome that, and yeah. that's cool because you can use that and get a chrome finish on stuff that's carbon fiber. Plastic. It's fiberglass, yeah. plastic, polycarbonate. And it is very convincing. It is, I mean, it is very chrome like. It, it looks really shiny, surprisingly. I want to say in 2006, they took a Pontiac Solstice and completely cosmochromed an entire car. And they must have done incredible prep work because it did not have any orange peel. It looked like a chrome-plated car. And I was very impressed with it. And they were like, this car's got 10,000 miles on it. Wow. Because it Mm -hmm. looked really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, do you still have an XS400 in your garage? I do. And you don't have any motivation to work on it when it's zero degrees out. Uh, correct. <laughs> so my motivation to fix things has been my snowblower. Yeah. And even then, that was that was a lot of effort because if you've ever had to change the paddles on your basic single-stage snowblower – it's not too bad until you get to having to do the side bolts, which it's obvious that those paddles were put on the uh, thing before it was inserted up into the machine uh, because there's no physical way that you can hold a nut and the, uh, you know, and, and get the bolts and everything through. So anyway, so yeah, that was, and, and when it was 40 degrees, the first time I did it, it wasn't bad, but the other day when I had to do it and it was eight degrees outside because Two of the nuts had backed themselves off. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So being outside is is not. I'm not highly motivated right now, and I just every time I look, I move that bike around a few times trying to make room in the garage so I get my wife's car in there, and I still couldn't do it. So, um, yeah, just uh, I want to get that thing running just so it's done and I can move on to other things, and it's no longer. Uh, yeah, you really should do that. You should really fix that. I don't know if that'll ever happen, but. I uh, uh, speaking of snowblower, I got my snowblower out. We haven't had any snow here to use it for the last two years. We had a couple of years there that we had two or three big snowstorms each year, 
And then for the last two years, we've had nothing. So it, I hadn't even started it in three years, but I had put, uh, pres- you know, fuel preservative in it before I left it. So I thought, oh, this will start. And I started messing with it. My wife's like, I smell fuel in the garage. And I look down and then there's just a puddle of fuel under it. And I, ne- I hadn't been able to start it and I couldn't figure out why. So I took it to a local engine shop and they were like, yeah, the entire float bowl has corroded away. Not float bowl, but the housing over the diaphragm. And and they were like, yeah, yeah the, the whole housing just is leaking because it's just eaten away. What would cause that? And he's like, gas. I'm like, no way. He's like, yeah, modern gas has so much detergent in it that if you have a cheap pop metal housing on your carburetor, he said two, three years tops and it's eaten through it. We see it all the time. Yeah. Modern gas is the nastiest... Between the detergents and the ethanol, it just eats away so, motors. So, Pete, yeah. you would you would know where to find this around you because of former hobbies. But uh, apparently, if if you buy fuel for boating, it doesn't have any of the ethanol or any of the other crap in it because they assume you, it'll be drained, and that is better for long term storage. Good to know. Yeah, and um, I think. There is a website that you can go to, and it'll tell you where you can get ethanol-free fuel in your area. And there's a couple of gas stations around me that I usually just go and fill up a five-gallon can every once in a while from others. Yeah, I I do have a place that has their premium fuel is ethanol-free, that they're Mm -hmm. three, four miles from me, so that's not too bad. I didn't even think about it, though. I thought, who, you know, I don't have to worry about fuel in a snowblower. Yeah, you wouldn't think. But but I got that running, and uh, a year ago we bought a uh, really nice honda generator i have been very negligent i have not drained the fuel out of it i've started up a couple times but i have not been trickle charging it and i have not drained the fuel out of it and i'm thinking okay now i need to get serious and start taking care of a very expensive investment because who knows when the next time i will need it i uh, i need to pull mine out and start it and run it for 20 minutes and just let it run through everything because uh, I did have to use it last winter, and of course it was dark and I couldn't see anything. And it has an electric start on it, thankfully. But still, I can't I can't pull start it. Oh, which sorry, this leads me to a fun another funny story because Garrett was talking about kickstarting and his foot. So <laughs> three years ago, almost exactly three years ago, I'd have my right shoulder operated on because of I'm getting old and damaged. Uh, well, apparently everything that happened to my right shoulder is now happening to my left shoulder. And you get so used to doing things a certain way when the uh, he's the snowblower the other day and it stopped and I went to just go start it quickly again because I was, a you know, you're kind of like in a group and I used my left arm to use the pull starter and it doesn't matter that it's a two stroke. Yeah, I couldn't see for about five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thankfully, well, not thankfully, but I am having surgery on it at the end of the month. But still, it's like. Okay, this is getting annoying, which is mm. also why I have not been to the gym in months as well. So, yeah, um, yeah. Well, because I had, I had, uh, sorry, I had uh, visions of buying a Yamaha R3 and going racing. Yeah, club club racing. Um, between my shoulder and my daily driver engine, essentially going boom. Yeah, that's kind of killed those plans for this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this is... when, 
this isn't when a four wheel podcast, but your your car tragedy is is worth recounting at some point. It's, com- it's comical, yeah. But when you take it and they tell you that your sixty five hundred dollar car essentially is going to require sixty five hundred dollars repair, um, you you sell it to the mechanic for seventeen hundred dollars very happily and walk away from it and just go lesson learns. Yeah. <laughs> That's unfortunate. And and now I have a Honda Element. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Well, but it, it's good for hauling motorcycles around. Yeah, there you go. Just while we were talking, I went back and I looked back through our old episodes. The last time all three of us were together was episode 59 on wow. May 30th. Wow. And uh, this is going to be, I think, episode 72. So we've had 12 <laughs> episodes without all of us getting together. And uh, with that, thank you to everybody who... Uh, I'm sorry, are you guys ready to wrap up? Anything else you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, we're at about uh, 50 minutes, so it's probably a good time for us to sign off. We try to keep these normally between 30 and 40 minutes, but uh, we had a lot to catch up on this week. Or this month, I guess I should start learning to say. Thank you guys for coming back with me. Thank you for restarting the podcast. Thank you to everybody who has decided to stick with us. And if you're new, we kind of do what we do. We're we're somewhere in between uh, the morning zoo and NPR. We're not really (laughs) terribly wacky and we're not super formal. So what you heard is probably what you're going to continue to get. Yeah. I will try to have an update other than cleaning my tools next month and uh, whatever else you guys do we'll follow up with on next year yeah awesome sounds good okay see y'all in February so long 